The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kemcaran. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. And this week we've got four brilliant pieces for you. Coming up on the podcast, Katie Balls asks whether Rishi is a risk taker or whether he'll choose to play it safe as conference season approaches. Owen Matthews explains why America is still Ukraine's best hope for victory. Kate Andrews is totally baffled and exasperated by the British refusal to get checked out by a doctor. And Ian Thompson reports from Sicily on the Godfather, Greek temples and a misunderstanding involving mascarpone cheese. First up, it's Katie Balls. When prime ministers sense the end is near, they tend to follow a similar pattern. They change senior civil servants and appointees, as Boris Johnson and Gordon Brown did. They avoid consulting their cabinet and instead hide behind special advisers. They declare that they don't like the polls before saying that the only poll that matters is the election. But before all of this, they usually attempt a reset. It's rarely a sign of rejuvenation, but rather the start of the embalming process. Rishi Sunak is aware of this, which is why there's no use of the word in number 10 as politics prepares to resume. He has so far resisted calls from backbenchers to change course, ditch his five priorities and articulate a grand new vision. We can't be knee-jerk, says a Downing Street aide, of the need to stay calm in the face of dismal polling. But while there won't be an official event or reset, a second stage of Sunak's premiership may be about to begin. After the first year, in which he focused on stabilising both markets and his party, he is ready to change gear. His political operation is set to become more election-ready and in sharpened attack mode. We should expect to see a focus on Keir Starmer's time as Director of Public Prosecutions. The party conference, the King's speech and the autumn statement will all be used as opportunities to show what a Sunak government can do. There is an appetite for risk in the Tory party, created by the failure to close the 20-point polling gap with Labour. The election strategist, Isaac Levido, has warned colleagues not to expect much improvement this year. Labour is being ultra-cautious, with Rachel Reeves ruling out a wealth tax, which has incentivised the Tories to shake things up. But Sunak is reluctant to do so for the sake of it. Tentative plans for a reshuffle when MPs return from the summer break have been delayed until after the party's annual get-together in October. Reshuffles tend to create enemies when MPs miss out on promotion or worse, find themselves sacked. You don't want a load of pissed off people at party conference talking to journalists, explains the minister. Not everyone agrees. Delaying it is mad, says the government aide. It looks weak. A new defence secretary has been announced. Grant Shapps. Replacing Ben Wallace, he wants to return to the backbenches before stepping down as an MP. Those hoping for fireworks are likely to be disappointed by that appointment. Shaps has been picked because he is a Sunak loyalist who will hold the line on Treasury spending when it comes to MOD budgets. 
Loyalty is valued, particularly so following the resignation of Nadine Dorries, who was out to destroy Sunak. 78 days after she first said she planned to quit with immediate effect, the former culture secretary sent her a resignation note to the press, rather than the prime minister. Sunak lacks vision, she said, and presides over a zombie parliament. While some MPs privately agree, Dory's behaviour has appalled enough of them to deny her much of a following. She behaves so badly people almost feel sorry for us, says the minister. As damp squibs go, this one was really damp, adds another. Doris is right to say that she can inflict pain on Sunak. Her decision to officially resign means a by-election mid-Bedfordshire is due in the autumn. The safe seat with a 24,664 Tory majority looks at risk. The only ray of light for Sunak is that Lib Dems and Labour both claim they can win the contest, which means they might split the vote and allow the Tories to sneak through the middle. Labour has led in the polls there, but the Lib Dems argue they have formed when it comes to winning by-elections from third place. They also seem to have significant appeal with voters appalled by the Tory mayhem who do not want to go so far as to endorsing Keir Starmer. The Liberal Democrat candidate is a member of the local Women's Institute. Labour's candidate grew up in Bedfordshire but is a London councillor who has been part of a Greenpeace demonstration against the Tories' public order bill. They won't win in the rural villages, says the Lib Dem source. A Tory loss would undoubtedly add to a sense of fatalism in the party. Sunak's immediate problem is passing the test he set himself in January. We're either delivering for you or we're not, he said as he revealed his five pledges to half inflation, cut debt, grow the economy, cut NHS waiting lists and stop the boats. While down 15% on last year, the number of small boat arrivals is still high. Downing Street is bullish that inflation will fall. Even if out by a month, it's a win, says one government figure involved. However, there is concern in the Treasury that the victory may be technical. A win still means inflation of 5% more than double the Bank of England's target. At party conference in Manchester, Sunak will attempt to go further. He will appear both in a town hall-style setup with members, where aides think he fares best, as well as giving the traditional leader speech. It will be Sunak's chance to present himself as more than just a manager. Expect a special focus on an education system that encourages children to want to learn. In November, the King's speech will focus on dividing lines with Labour on crime as well as energy security. But Sunak wants to keep it in line with the five priorities and to make a virtue of his refusal to waver from this agenda. The speech may well be slim, to make sure the bills included offer little opportunity for Labour to add amendments. The autumn statement will then be used to address the two issues holding the economy back most, business investment and lows and out-of-work benefits. A change to the amount of capital allowance may be included in the statement. In a letter to MPs before the summer recess, Sunak said, In the autumn, we will also be setting out more of our plan for Britain. I am determined that we will stand on a properly conservative platform next year. Many MPs hope that means tax cuts are on the horizon, which is still number 10's intention. But to turn his party's fortunes around, the PM needs to show he is willing to take risks. That was Katie Balls. Next is Owen Matthews. As Ukraine marked its 32nd national holiday since independence, news from the front lines in the wider world appeared better than perhaps in any week since the recapture of Kherson in November. In Zaporozhye, the hard-fought front lines moved a few miles forward. In Crimea, 
and missile strike took out a Russian S-400 anti-aircraft complex and a team of Ukrainian commanders briefly raised their yellow and blue flag on the peninsula for the first time since Russia's 2014 annexation. A Russian Mi-8 helicopter pilot defected to Ukraine with a load of jet engine parts. Near nightly waves of drone strikes deep inside Russia blew up two 222M long-range bombers, four Il-78 transport aircraft and repeatedly struck central Moscow. Vladimir Putin, unable to travel because of an international criminal court arrest warrant, was humiliatingly forced to appear at the BRICS summit in South Africa by video link. The Netherlands, Norway and Denmark announced the transfer of 73 F-16 fighters to Kiev. A much-anticipated Russian unmanned landing on the moon ended in disaster, while a rival mission from India succeeded. To top it all, Russia's most high-profile attack of the week was against its own side. The plane carrying Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin and the whole mercenary group's leadership blew up north of Moscow with no survivors. Small wonder, then, that many Ukrainians dared to hope that the tide of war could finally be turning in their favour. As one Ukrainian artist friend told me on a video call as he strolled past the display of wrecked Russian armour laid out along Kiev's main boulevard, we're finally getting some breaks. It feels like victory will come soon. For Mikhailo Pedalyak, a senior advisor to Vladimir Zelensky, Prigozhin's apparent murder, quote, confirms that a new stage has begun in Russia's domestic policy, a time of troubles. He also predicts that Ukraine will not have to take every kilometre back with blood because a major breakthrough to the Crimean border will trigger a Russian military collapse. Quote, everything will end quickly and instantly just as it began. Perhaps. But for the time being, the pace of Ukraine's advance is dictated first and foremost by the quantity and quality of weaponry supplied by Kiev's allies, primarily the Americans. And clouds are gathering for Kiev on the US political horizon. A recent CNN poll showed that less than 45% of Americans say that Congress should authorize additional funding for Ukraine, against 55% who wanted to stop. Donald Trump, the clear leader in the race for the Republican presidential nomination, has promised to end the war in 24 hours. Pressed last month to elaborate, he revealed his plan. Quotes, tell Zelensky, no more, you've got to make a deal. And Putin, if you don't make a deal, we're going to give them a lot. We're going to give them more than they ever got. This is exactly the kind of land-for-peace compromise Zelensky has repeatedly rejected. Trump's main Republican challenger and mooted running mate, the pharmaceutical billionaire Vivek Ramaswamy, is even more Ukraine skeptic. He says Russia could keep large swathes of Ukraine in exchange for Putin, quotes, ending his alliance with China. Our goal should not be for Putin to lose. And the Democrats? Joe Biden and his administration have been steadfast in their support for Kiev. The president repeated last week that the US will never give up its support. To date, he has pushed $135 billion worth of military and economic aid through Congress. But even Biden's stated position is to arm Ukraine to, quote, fight on the battlefield and be in the strongest possible position at the negotiating table. That is very far from Zelensky's stated goal of liberating all of his lost territories. Support for continuing to arm Ukraine is generally stronger in Europe, but the numbers are also falling. Germany's second most popular party, the AfD, is strongly against the war's continuation. A four-year, 50 million euro package 
of mostly economic and reconstruction aid to Ukraine has run into serious opposition from Hungary, Austria, Croatia, Bulgaria, Cyprus, Slovakia and Greece. And even staunch allies of Kiev like Poland want more compensation for their own war-related economic problems. Even the much-heralded Dutch, Danish, Norwegian pledge of F-16 fighter jets is not quite the breakthrough at first seemed. According to reports, at least 18 of the Netherlands' 40 pledged planes are unable to fly and good only for ground training and parts. It will also take up to 18 months to train Ukrainian pilots and ground crews and deploy the aircraft to the front lines. But in terms of purely military aid, Europe's contribution is a mere drop in the bucket compared with the US. The UK, for instance, has provided £4.6 billion worth of arms to Ukraine, less than 5% of the US's contribution. It is in America that a Ukrainian victory will be broken or made. With the very real possibility of a new Trump administration being elected in November 2024, the obvious strategy for Putin is to sit tight and hold on to as much Ukrainian ground as he can. Quotes, I don't understand why Putin would end his invasion until he knows the outcome of the US presidential election, says Michael McFaul, Barack Obama's chief Russian advisor and former ambassador to Moscow. Explain to me your plan for getting him to negotiate now. Only a humiliating, comprehensive and decisive military defeat or a collapse of the Russian economy could force Putin into talks before then. Realistically, neither of those outcomes seems very likely. While sanctions have poisoned Russia's economy and depressed the ruble, the Kremlin has managed to keep enough oil exports flowing out and parallel imports flowing in to cushion the population from serious pain. Wagner's mutiny in June showed that Putin's security state was unexpectedly brittle, but through a combination of guile and treachery, Putin faced down and ultimately eliminated Prigozhin. Ukrainian drone strikes have brought the war home to millions of Russians who had until now been able to successfully ignore it. However, Kiev's attacks inside Russia have so far delivered more symbolic damage than military hammer blows. The reality is that Ukraine's closest allies hold out little hope that Kiev will be able to achieve what it defines as a victory with the military resources that it's so far been given. A slew of leading US newspapers, all citing senior administration, military and security sources, has gloomily predicted that Ukraine's summer offensive is going nowhere. According to one anonymously sourced story in the New York Times, US and other Western officials say Ukraine's counteroffensive would not have enough decisive firepower to reclaim much of the 20% of the country that Russia occupies. In short, Kiev's friends in the West do not seem to believe that Ukraine can win. And the reason the Ukrainians cannot win is the West's hesitancy in escalating arms deliveries for fear of provoking Putin. The argument is circular. Support for continuing to arm Ukraine in the US is not only waning, but fatally for Kiev is also becoming a wedge partisan issue. As the US enters its 2024 primary and electoral cycle, it seems unlikely that the Biden administration will risk a dramatic increase or upgrade in military aid, and indeed will struggle in Congress to maintain current levels. That's unfortunate, it's tragic, and it's unfair. But the cruel bottom line is that it's now down to the imagination and fighting spirit of Ukraine to try to win as much ground as it can with the resources that it has before war fatigue among its allies cheats it of victory. That was Owen Matthews. Next is Kate Andrews. Having lived in the United Kingdom for almost my whole adult life, I like to think I'm well assimilated. I stopped trying to make pleasantries with strangers a long time ago. I skipped dinner to stand outside the pub, 
in the dark. Apart from my accent, though Americans tell me that's changed too, I think I can just about pass as British. But never for long. At some point, someone starts talking about a health worry or new ailment, and I tell them to see the doctor. Suddenly, the jig is up, and I'm an outsider again. I'm now very familiar with the British aversion to seeking medical care. Still, it horrifies me. I sound like a broken record around friends and colleagues as I repeatedly tell them to go and get their problems checked out. It's as if I'm speaking a foreign language that simply does not translate. Sometimes I'm met with confused stares or awkward laughter. Mostly, I'm met with bafflement, as if I've just suggested they deal with a mole on their wrist by sawing off their arm. Going to the doctor, what a crazy thing to do. The crazier thing to do, I'd say, is to live with ongoing pain. I've got the rest of the world backing me up on this one. Non-Brits are totally perplexed by the relationship between Brits and their healthcare. On the one hand, universal access to the National Health Service is held up as the UK's crowning achievement. On the other, its residents try as hard as they can not to go anywhere near it. Of course, there's an easy rebuttal to my advice at the moment. Who can access health services right now, even if they wanted to? The NHS is in ruins after the pandemic, and the situation is made worse by the ongoing strikes, which mean hundreds of thousands of cancelled appointments. If you're lucky enough to see your GP in a decent time frame, you risk having your name added to the 7.6 million strong waiting list if any serious problem is found. An understandable conclusion to all this might be, what's the point in trying? I'm never one to shy away from highlighting how the NHS fails its patients. A study from the King's Fund earlier this year found the NHS ranked second to last on its list for saving patients with treatable illnesses. They are seen too late. But it is only in countries where so many people deliberately put off diagnosis and treatment can such archaic systems survive. Americans might put off going to the doctor because they are afraid of the costs. In the UK, it's a different problem. My friends would tell me in our 20s that they wouldn't bother the GP with their health issues because appointments were limited and should go to those most in need. It's a sacrifice that seems rather noble until you realize that people in their 60s and 70s are doing the same. The average household is paying thousands of pounds a year in tax for health care, yet it seems everyone is staying home to help each other. Perhaps this is how my GP surgery gets away with keeping its doors closed over the weekend. It's this sense of sacrificial duty that was exploited at the height of the pandemic, when people were told to stay home to protect the NHS. The government's Look Them in the Eyes campaign, featuring photos of gravely ill COVID patients asking if you could tell her you never bend the rules, didn't explicitly ask if your health problem was worth a trip to A&E. It didn't need to be said. After years of conditioning, Brits understood the calling. The fear predates the pandemic. Back in 2018, 60% of Brits were already reportedly putting off seeking medical care because they were afraid of what might be discovered. In the words of one of my colleagues, they never tell you anything good. So why volunteer to hear some bad news? This is what happens when a health system essentially abandons preventative health care. I learned this years ago when I rang my GP surgery to schedule a routine health check, only to be told to call back when I turned 40. No one here sees the GP when they're healthy or when their ailments can be treated at an early stage. Their only experience with the doctor comes when things have progressed to a far worse diagnosis. But if the system rejects you, reject the system. That's why Brits take pride in not seeking medical care. Bring up the subject of GP appointments and everyone starts competing. Not over how recently they got a checkup, but how long it's been since they've been to the GP. I often leave the room as I simply can't compute what I'm hearing, five, seven, ten years without being seen. 
A friend of mine in his early 30s is using his holiday to pick out banger hymns for his funeral one day, while also bragging to me that he hasn't been to the GP in almost a decade. Illness eventually catches up with the healthiest of us. I've had more luck in recent years convincing colleagues and a few friends to go and see my private GP, who is usually available to see them on the day. The Spectator offers health insurance, making this a realistic course of action. It's always a battle against some variant of the stiff upper lip, perhaps. What I find remarkable and harrowing is how that pretense is kept up when lips are quivering, the pain is too much, and a doctor is so obviously needed. My most recent success was getting a colleague to have a bug bite seen to, which was close to hospitalizing her within hours. Thankfully, all turned out well. But my success was fleeting, as it was largely agreed by our friends that she had timed her trip to the GP perfectly, while I maintained she should have gone a week earlier. Still, I'll take the small one. That was Kate Andrews, and finally, here's Ian Thompson. Sicily is far removed from the gracious suavities of Tuscany. With the souk-like atmosphere of its markets and obscure exuberance of life in the old Cosa Nostra towns, the Mediterranean island is halfway to Muslim Tunisia. The British Tuscanites who descend on the hills around Florence during the summer holidays as part of their Toujours Tuscany dream, Tony Blair, Sting, David Cameron, are thankfully nowhere in evidence. In our post-Godfather world, no history of Sicily would be complete without mention of the Mafia. The word is said to derive from the Arabic machias, meaning aggressive boasting. For almost three centuries until the Norman conquest of 1061, Sicily was an Islamic emirate. I had come to a small town in the mafia-dominated west of the island to talk about the Sicilian detective novelist and essayist Leonardo Shasha, whose work I translated. Shasha was born in Racalmuto in 1921. For years, the mafia spread its tentacles into the town's sulphur industry, but the sulphur mines are closed now and add to a derelict air. Shasha's father, employed in the Racalmuto mines as a bookkeeper, was the son of a Caruso, or child miner. Unsurprisingly, Sulphur's jaundice yellow is emblematic in Shasha's fiction of mafia-related extortion and cruelty. In his first Cosa Nostra-themed novel, The Day of the Owl, Il Giorno della Civetta, published in 1961, the face of a bus conductor caught up in a shotgun vendetta is the colour of sulphur. In Sicily's age-old burden of injustice and death, Shasha found a drama that served him well as a writer who cast an inquisitorial eye on political corruption in all its guises. He died in the Sicilian capital of Palermo in 1989 at the age of 68, a lifelong heavy smoker. In Racalmuto, my wife and I were put up in a hotel whose rooms were named after characters in Shasha's books. Ours was Captain Bellodi, the helpless carabinieri officer in the day of the owl. In the salt stickiness and African heat of midday, we were ready to collapse. 
I was 24 years old when I interviewed Shasha in 1985 for the London magazine. With juvenile impertinence, I telephoned him without an introduction from a bar on the Palermo outskirts and demanded an audience. I recall that I wore a dark blue tie and dark blue jacket for the interview, as Shasha himself dressed in what I took to be Sicilian formality. Three decades on, Shasha's grandson, Vito Catalano, decided to publish the interview as a book. Una conversazione a Palermo con Leonardo Shasha. A conversation in Palermo with Leonardo Shasha. At the book launch that evening in the courtyard of Racalmuto's 18th century town hall, I was asked if Shasha was much read in the English-speaking world. I had to say that he is not, though Caroline Moorhead is currently writing a book about him, and Gore Vidal was always an admirer. Next day we visited the Greek temples in Agrigento province, of which Rakamuto is part. The heat was ferocious, and I was glad to be able to make a sun hat out of the copy of the Times Literary Supplement I had in my bag. Samuel Beckett had usefully described the TLS as being impermeable to farts. The last time I visited the Valley of the Temples was with my sister Claire, who died too early, last July at 58. I am left with a sense of lost chances, terrible grief and unfinished business. Sicilians are a death-haunted people who understand dying in the way that many Northern Europeans, with their noses to the grindstone, find hard to understand. Palermo's turban-wearing Saracen ancestors would have been astonished by the noisy beep and break of traffic in the city today. After interviewing Shasha that winter day 38 years ago, I was mugged by a couple of hoodlums on a souped-up Vespa. I ran after them shouting, Mascapone! Mascapone! A homonymous near-miss for Mascalzoni, Italian for rascals, which is what I had intended. The expression on the policeman's face when I explained that two cream cheeses had made off with my shoulder bag was one of pity. The bag contained a paperback edition of Dostoevsky's The Idiot and a roll of lavatory paper. On the way back from Rakamuto to the villa where we were staying in the hills beyond Chefalu, we saw evidence of the wildfire damage wrought by anti-cyclone Nero. Burned fields, burned olive groves. Mount Etna, on Sicily's Catanian coast, had erupted in Catania Airport, where temperatures had reached a purgatorial 47 degrees centigrade, was closed as a consequence. Our villa, designed by the Palermitan architect Adriana Bisconti, was situated below Pollina, in the cool green uplands of the Madonia National Park. Out to sea loomed the volcanic archipelago of the Aeolian Islands, where my friend Gaia Servadio, or Gaia Servadio to the English, who was one of Boris Johnson's disappointed mothers-in-law, used to keep her home. Otto, our village cat, drank from the swimming pool in the mornings while giant black Sicilian bees fed off purple carob blossom. On my wife's birthday, 15th August, 
the feast day of the Assumption of Our Lady, we ate in a wayside inn in San Mauro Castelverde that served Madonite specialities of pan-fried prickly pearskins without the spines, snails in tomato sauce and wild boar salami. For pudding came crispy fiorello little flour confections filled with ricotta and sugary pistachio paste. It was the Arabs who first bit a sweet tooth into Sicily. Leave the gun, take the cannoli, as that line in The Godfather goes. Thank you, Ian Thompson, for drawing to a close this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If you've enjoyed these articles and would like more, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Ken Karen. Thanks so much for listening, and please do join us again next week.